I am Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, writing this letter to all those who are followers of Christ. Defend the faith, guard your hearts, and cherish the gift of salvation that was given to you. Be wary of those who are misrepresenting God's word. Our Lord Jesus told us that they will cause division, confusion, and participate in their own destruction. Keep up your guard. Build up your faith by hearing and obeying God's word. Pray in the spirit and rely on God's love and mercy. Show love and care for those who do not yet know Jesus. Be tender with unbelievers, but not soft on sin. Remember, this life in Christ is the real, unending life. And now to him who keeps us safe, our amazing Jesus, all glory, majesty, power, and authority are his both now and forevermore. Well, our time of worship was pretty special, wasn't it? I love, I love this worship team. I love taking us to the throne. It's just wonderful. I want to welcome all of our guests that are with us today. If you are visiting our church, if you're a guest of our church, would you do me a favor? Would you just look at the people across the aisle and people to the right and left of you? Aren't they good looking? Isn't this a great looking church? And I'm going to tell you something, I know these people, and, and they, these people that you are looking at love God, they're living the life, and I'm so grateful. They're some of the best people in the whole world right here in this room. Now, amen, I, I heard that, amen, I got some amens this morning about that. Now, look, I, yesterday morning, I woke up, and I realized, it's June? How did it become June. So fast, it's June. And what this means is that a week from tomorrow is Vacation Bible School, VBS, and it's going to be in this building. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to have over 2,000. I'm really serious. We're going to have over 2,000 kids alone, plus five, 600 adults. Yay, God, for the adults that are coming with the 2,000 kids. In this building, and I'm going to tell you, you've never been to VBS if you haven't been to Sugar Creek's VBS. It's just an amazing place. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Today, what I want to do is begin a new book in the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's an old book in the New Testament, but a new book for us. And the book's name is Jude, the book of Jude. And some of you are sitting there, honestly, if I could read your mind, and you're saying, wait a minute, there's a book called Jude in the Bible? I've never heard that. Well, it's very easy to overlook. It's just way back, almost to the end of the New Testament. It's only one chapter. It's only 25 verses. 25 verses. So I, I, I got to tell you, a lot of people never go there, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if there are people in this room who've never heard one sermon on the book of Jude before in your life. But we're going to look in the book of Jude for four Sundays, counting this one. And it's only 25 verses, and some of you are thinking, what? Why are you spending four weeks over just 25 verses. Well, it is not because my grandson's name is Jude. It is not because of that, though that would have been a good excuse. It is because those 25 verses in the book of Jude are so powerful. They are so full. It is absolutely amazing what God has crunched into just 25 verses. So it's going to take us four weeks. When we get to the end of the four weeks, I'm going to be thinking, good grief, I'd left so much out. 
But that's the way I feel with every book that we look at. Now, the whole series, the whole big theme, the big idea of Jude is keeping up our guard. And if there's any time in America in which Christians need to keep up their guard, it's now. Keeping up our guard. And Jude is going to teach us how to do that. But the very first part of the book of Jude is about our amazing salvation. And I've asked my Jude if he would come and read the passage for us. Look at this handsome guy that is walking right up here beside me. Now let me tell you, he has just graduated from the fourth grade. He's almost an old man now. He has graduated from the fourth grade. And he's an amazing baseball player. So he is reading from Jude for me today. Jude chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, called being the key word, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. Is he amazing or what? Thank you, Jude. Thank you very much. Now, who is this Jude of the Bible that is writing the book of Jude? Who is this guy? Well, he is the brother of James, and James wrote the book of James in the New Testament. So they are brothers to each other, these two guys who write two books of the Bible, of the New Testament. And they are half-brothers of Jesus. Look with me, Mark chapter 6, verse 1, and look at what it says. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. We know Jesus was raised in Nazareth, and now he has gone back to his hometown. And the next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed, and they asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? And then they scoffed. Jesus is just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us, and they were deeply offended and refused to believe in Jesus. As it turns out, Jesus is the older of a big family, the older sibling of a big family. His siblings and he were half-brothers, half-sisters, and why? Because they had the same mother, Mary, but they had different fathers. All of these siblings had as their father Joseph, but you remember that Jesus' father is God and that Mary, when she gave birth to Jesus, was still a virgin. And that's what makes them half-brothers and half-sisters. But I will tell you that James and Jude did not even believe that Jesus was the Messiah. The whole time he was in his teaching ministry, they didn't even believe in him. They didn't even accept him. And maybe none of the other siblings did either. After all, they had been raised with him. A prophet is never, never received by his hometown, much less his own family. 
But after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus appeared directly to James in a long meeting with James, and James could not deny the truth. Jesus is alive again. He is truly the Son of God. He truly is the Messiah. And James not only became a believer, he became one of the greatest leaders in the entire church, early church, and he must have led his brother Jude to Christ. He must have led all of his other siblings to Christ. I'm just guessing, but it makes sense that he did. And I'm also just guessing, but it makes sense to me, that Jude must have been a part of the 500. There were 500 that were gathered when Jesus lifted up to heaven, ascended to heaven. There were 500 believers who had seen him alive again after the resurrection, and Jude must have been one of those. So Jude is called by God to begin writing a book, and he writes this book called Jude. And when he begins to write the book, he has one goal in mind, and that is to write a book talking about our amazing salvation. But when he gets to the end of verse 3, Jude even tells us himself, God changed the whole book. When he gets to verse 3, he says, I intended to write this entire book about our amazing salvation, but God has changed the purpose. The Holy Spirit began to speak to us and changed the purpose to talk about keeping up our guard. My Jude was right when he said that the key word of verse 1 is the word called. We were called by God our Father. That word called is an essential word about understanding our salvation. There are other words that you will notice in the New Testament just like it. There is chosen, there is elected, there is drawn. All of these words, when you start reading the New Testament seriously, you begin the New Testament, go through, you will see the word chosen and elected and called. You will see this word over and over and over again. Paul uses it a billion times, and Peter uses it, and John uses it. Here's Jude using it, and Jesus even used it. So, for us to understand what this amazing salvation is about, we got to understand these words. And here's what I want to say to you. I've had several of our members who've asked me if I would address this issue when the time was appropriate. And when I saw the word called in verse 1 of Jude, I said, this is the moment. And I'm about to get deep. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be a kind of hard. And I'm going to ask you, this is not baby food here. I'm going to give you some deeper stuff, and it's going to be harder to grab hold of it. And I'm going to ask you, use your brain all the way through. And I've given you so many student notes. Unbelievable the number of notes in there. And the reason is because there's so much to cover. Just follow. Fill in those blanks. I'm going to read more than I usually read because I want to stay with the notes and not skip some. I want to make sure I say exactly what I need to say. So get ready. Put on your seatbelts because we're going to deal with some pretty tough stuff. But here's the deal. If you get serious in your Christian life about going deeper and growing deeper in your life, you cannot help but but come to these words. It's time to take a look. The first statement I want to make to you is this. We are Christ followers only because God called us out to be his children. The word called. 
Jude uses the word in Jude chapter 1 verse 1, you have been called, and it's the word that means called out, you have been called out by God the Father who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. Paul says exactly the same thing, but listen to how he puts it in 2 Timothy 1.9. God has saved us and called us out. That's what the word means. He has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done. Stop right there. You and I have not been called out by God to be saved because of anything we've done. You and I are not saved because we are really good people. We're not saved by anything we've done. We're not saved because we go to church. We're not saved because we were born in a Christian family. We're not saved because we're Americans. We're not saved because we come to Sugar Creek Baptist Church. We're not saved for any of those reasons. I am such a good person. I must be saved. The Bible says that's wrong. There's no truth to that statement whatsoever. And this verse is saying the same thing. He is saying, we are saved and called out by God not because of anything we've done. Well, then what is it that causes us to be called out by God? Notice what he says. Be, but because of his own purpose, his own sovereign will, his own purpose, and his grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. When did time begin? It began at the beginning of the universe. And so he is saying this, grab this, that before God even created this universe, he looked down through time and he saw you and he saw me. And he called us out to be his children at that time. This is what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. The only reason we're saved is not because of our own goodness, but only because of God's grace. The word church in the New Testament is a Greek word called ekklesia, and it means the called out ones. When we gather to church like today, it's the called out ones that are coming together. That's what the word church means. God has called us to be saved, and God has chosen us to be saved. That's the next point. We are Christ's followers only because God chose us to be His children. Jesus makes a statement to His disciples that I, I want to read to you to sort of introduce a whole lot of verses that are going this direction. And Jesus said to his disciples this in John chapter 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now, obviously, the disciples told Jesus, chose Jesus. Those stories are in the New Testament. You can read them. Jesus came to Peter and John and said, come and follow me, and they dropped everything, and they went and followed him. It was not that they were puppets. They weren't robots. They weren't in some mind warp. They chose Jesus. They had to lay down their fishing equipment and chose him, and every single disciple, every single one, Jesus came and said, come and follow me. And they laid down their jobs and they chose to follow him. So what does Jesus mean 
When he says, I chose you, you didn't choose me. What Jesus is saying is he did the choosing first. Jesus chose them first. And they would have never chosen him had he not chosen them. Jesus chose the disciples before they chose him. And Jesus chose us before we ever chose him. And he chose us only so that because it pleased him to do so. This is what he's saying in the verse. But now look at the other verses. Here's the key idea. Jesus did the first choosing, and had Jesus not chosen us, we wouldn't have chosen him. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In God, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God chose you and me before we chose him, and we would have never chosen him had he not already chosen us. This is the idea. Look at verse 4. Ephesians 1, 4. For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Before the creation of all the universe, God looked down through time. He saw you. He saw me. There was nothing in us that, he would, that would cause him to choose us. But he still chose us. He chose us for what? Well, he, cho- he chooses people to be saved, and this is what 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning of the universe for salvation. It's just there. And it's only one verse of many verses in the New Testament. You're going to come across them when you read and study through the New Testament. For salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. Sounds very much like what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1. But then listen to Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says this, You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Christ and the sprinkling by His blood. He is really saying exactly the same thing. The whole idea of the sanctification of the Spirit, exactly what Paul was saying in 2 Thessalonians, the sprinkling of the blood is for the salvation of our souls. You know what? Paul and Peter probably never read each other's books. They didn't have the technology to be able to mass produce their books, and they probably never read each other's books. But they're saying exactly the same thing. We have been called by God to be saved. We have been chosen by God to be saved. And there's one other level. Get ready. This is Jesus talking. Get ready for what he says. Jesus says this in John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, Jesus is saying, my father has to initiate this whole process. And no one will come to me unless my father draws that person. John chapter 6, verse 65, and, he, as he, and Jesus is talking, For this reason I've said to you 
that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. In other words, God has to choose you and draw you before you and I will ever choose Jesus. You get the idea? Here we go. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. The big idea Jesus is teaching us is this. A person doesn't accept Jesus as Savior just on their own volition. That person comes to Christ only because he or she was drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit. You are saved. I am saved only because we were chosen by God. How do I know I've been chosen by God? Do you love him? Do you want Jesus in your heart? Do you want to be saved? Do you, have you committed your heart by faith to Christ? The only reason that you would do that is because God has drawn you. God has chosen you. God has called you. How do I know I've been chosen by God and, and called by God and drawn by God? Because I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I repented of my sin, and by faith I turned my heart to Jesus. Look again at that verse, John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The basis of God choosing me is that God is sovereign over all of his creation. The word sovereign simply means an absolute control. I accepted Christ as my Savior because before the world even began, God in His sovereign love chose me to be His. And the same is true about you. He drew me to Himself. I'm saved and you're saved not because of our good deeds, but because of God's choosing us. How do I know? How do I know God has chosen me? Do you want Jesus in your heart? Did you pray and say, Jesus Christ, I accept you in my heart. I want to live for you. I turn from my sin and my, I turn my heart to you. I want you to be the center of my life. Did you say that? Is that true in your heart? You would have never come to that conclusion on your own. By the fact that you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, it's evidence he's called you. He's chosen you. He has drawn you. You know what is the most amazing thing in the world? That he would even want you. And that he would even want me. Come on, let's get humble around here. He's the God of the universe. Good grief, what in the world do you have and I have that he needs? What do we have to offer him of our own self? absolutely nothing. He chose us. He called us. He drew us because He loves us. And for no other reason, not because of us. The Bible clearly teaches what is called the sovereign election of God. It's all through the New Testament. At the same time, the same Bible 
teaches also that God allows the free will of mankind concerning salvation. I told you it's deep. you got to keep walking with me. It is God's will that every human being on the face of this earth come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and be forever saved. And how do I know that? For God so loved the world. Not just some. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever... All that comes after, for God so loved the world, modifies the beginning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men, meaning all mankind, not just men, men, women, children, all mankind, who desires all mankind to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, not just some all. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for who? All. Not just some, but all. The testimony given at the proper time. How do I know this is the right interpretation of this? Because in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Not just for some. A person who's reading the Scripture can only come to an idea that he's only talking about a select group called the elect and not all by being coached to believe that, not because when they read it, that's what they read. They read all, all people. What I'm saying is this, that these passages show that it is God's will that every person on the face of this earth be saved. But will every person on the face of this earth be saved? No. Why? Because God didn't make robots. He didn't create us to be puppets. He didn't pre-program us to force us. He didn't do that. In his love for us, it was his sovereign will. It's still his sovereignty. It was his sovereign will to give us a free will. Our free will is not a denial of God's sovereignty. It is an acknowledgement of what he chose in his sovereign will to do. To give us free will. He has placed a whosoever will invitation to the world. Acts 2.21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 6 verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes him that that will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. 
how often I wanted. This is the sovereign Messiah. This is the sovereign will of God being expressed. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Jesus is saying, I would have forgiven you. I wanted to save you, but you said no. You are lost not because I chose you to be lost. You are lost because you refused my salvation with your own free will. Okay. Wow. I'm just visiting the church today and look at all this stuff. And I feel for you. I really do. But here's the truth. The deeper we grow in our Christian life, the more we begin to really understand Scripture and the New Testament, we'll come across these words of, of election and these words of drawing and choosing and, and, and calling out. And, and what do they mean in all these verses that express free will? What do they mean? How do we put these things together? And what has happened is that there are two opposite pole groups. There is one group that says, I believe in the sovereign will of God. He is absolutely sovereign in control. There's another group that says, I believe in the free will of man. And I am teaching both are true. They're not on opposite ends. They're not exclusive of each other. Both are true. Now, by the fact I'm teaching this, I'm frustrating several people, many people in this room and in the other services, and I know it, and I hate frustrating people and making them upset with me. I hate doing that. But the reason I'm saying that is, is, is that we have many people that are on this side. It's called Calvinist, and we have many people on this side that are Arminians, and you're arguing with me, and I don't blame you. I understand it. But I see both true at the same time, and I do it because I see that to be being honest with Scripture. And others don't agree with that, and it's okay. So what are these two sides? This side call, are called Calvinists, and the, the, this, this is a group that, that follows John Calvin. He was one of the Reformers. He wasn't the only Reformer, and not every Reformer was Calvinist by any stretch. Just some were. And John Calvin, and John Calvin was brilliant, and he was a fantastic godly man. And he came up trying his best to grab hold of what the Scripture teaches about all of this stuff we're dealing with. And here is what Calvin came out with. He said, God is absolutely sovereign. He is totally in charge. God has to call us. He has to draw us. He has to choose us. And it is not ourselves. And I'm going to tell you, I totally agree with him. He is 100% absolutely sovereign. But the other side of that was this. And as a logical deduction of it, mankind has no free will for salvation. So God chooses who will be saved and by logical conclusion chooses who will be lost forever and no one can alter. Because if they could, how could he possibly be sovereign? 
you know what? I get this. I totally understand this. I will tell you, in my master's degree at Southwestern Seminary, I studied under Dr. Tom Nettles, and Dr. Tom Nettles is one of the great Calvinists of the world. I mean, if you've been involved in the Calvinist world, you would have come across that name, Dr. Tom Nettles. I loved him. He was a great teacher. I loved every class, and for one whole semester, I got the whole load about Calvinism. I, we, we read Calvin's Institutes, and all, we did all this stuff, and I know the arguments, and I understand the arguments with that, and I heard him, and I, I went through with an open mind, God, teach me, and we went through everything. When I came to the end of it, I came to the conclusion. I agree with the first part. I don't agree with the second part because I see so many verses that says the opposite. The other side, by the way, we've got Calvinists in our church, and they are the most wonderful, godly individuals you've ever met. They know the Word. They love God. They love the Word of God, and they walk their talk. They are great members of this church, and I so respect them and love them, and that is honest true. We have many members in our church who are the other side that are called Arminians, and I love them. They are godly men and women. They know the Word of God. They study the Word of God. They live the Word of God. And they are great members of this church. And they are Arminians. So what are Arminians? What do Arminians believe? Arminianism teaches that God knows in advance we will choose Him, and He only chooses us because He knows we will choose Him. Looks down through time. They're going to choose me. I choose them. The problem with that view is that it doesn't fit Scripture. It makes God only a responder and us an initiator, and that is not what the Bible describes about salvation at all. You could not get through so many passages of Scripture with that view. And so, that is not how I see the Bible describing salvation or the sovereignty of God. So, Pastor, which one is it? The sovereignty of God or the free will of man? And my answer is yes. It's yes. And I want to tell you why. I see both in Scripture. Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers who ever lived on the face of the earth. He lived in the middle 1800s. He lived in London, and he was just an amazing speaker, amazing preacher. I could not. I am not worthy of tying his shoelaces. I'm just telling you, I know that. Charles Spurgeon said this, not once, but several times in his sermons, I've read them, the system of truth revealed in the Scriptures is not simply one straight line, but two. And no man will ever get the right view of the gospel until he knows how to look at the two lines at once. These two facts, divine sovereignty and human, free, human freedom, are parallel lines. I can't make them meet, meaning I don't have the logical ability to bring them together because they are logically opposed to each other, neither can anyone 
Make them cross each other. Now, I'm going to tell you, in two sermons, in the introduction of the sermon, here's what he said. Now, look, Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist. And Charles Spurgeon said this, I'm about to make my Calvinist friends mad at me. But here's what I want to say to you. When my Calvinist friends take these verses in 2 Peter 3, 9, that says that it's God's will for all to come repentance and say, well, God didn't really mean that. He only meant the elect. The all is just the elect. When they take 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, and 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and they say, God didn't actually mean what it says in the verse. He actually meant just the elect. Spurgeon says when someone does, does that, they are trying to put words in God's mouth and how dare they do it. God knew exactly what he wanted to say, and he said what he wanted to say, and if he wanted to say just elect, he would have said just elect, but he did not. So don't put words in God's mouth. This is what he says, and he says, I know, I'm making my Calvinist friends mad, but here is the truth. So many times in his sermons, he brings out these two points. It is the sovereignty, absolute sovereignty of God. It is the free will of man because God in his sovereign choice chose it to be that. And both of them are true. Okay, calm down, Mark. Now, Charles Swindoll, one of my heroes in the faith. How many people in this room know who Charles Swindoll? Oh, man, I wish every one of you knew. He's amazing. He's fantastic. He said, both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are two rails on a train track. All he's doing is using Spurgeon's words, but in more modern terms. And he says, you have to have both rails to get the train of salvation down the track. Trying to use only one will surely wreck your train. John Broadus One of the greatest theologians, quite honestly, in the early 20th century explained it this way. He said, you can see only two sides of a building at once. If you go around it, you'll see two different sides, but the first two sides are now hidden. This is true if you're on the ground, but if you are up there where God is, you can see that there are four sides and you can see them all together in the same way. Our finite minds can take in both sovereignty and free will alternately, but we cannot view them simultaneously because they're illogical. However, God can. What Charles Spurgeon and these other theologians are suggesting is that both ideas are clearly taught in the Bible, not just one of them. They acknowledge that in human logic, the two cannot fit together, but in God's logic, they both exist in harmony. The only way you can take all the verses of the Bible about salvation at face value is to accept both positions simultaneously, because here's the truth, both ends have to say about some verses, well, God didn't, he said it, but he didn't actually mean that. No. The only way you can take all these verses simultaneously is that you have to believe it is total sovereignty of God, total free will that He has given mankind. And this is my position. Now listen, 
This was the position of two pastors ago in this church, Dr. Havard, because Dr. Havard and I had several conversations about this subject, and he told me very clearly, I agree with you on this subject. This is what I have taught at Sugar Creek. And Pastor Fenton Moorhead, and I've had one extensive conversation about this topic, and he said, I totally agree with your position, and I give you permission to tell the whole church that I do. And what I'm saying is, three pastors, over the span of 40 years, this is what has been taught in this church, consistently from beginning to end. I'm almost done. So here's my suggestion. I mean total respect, I really do, to both groups that don't agree with me. I mean total respect. I really, honestly do. But the truth is, Calvinism and Arminianism are man-made theological systems. And great, I mean, we've got a ton of them in theology. But don't let a man-made theological system such as Calvinism and Arminianism put you in a position that you have to explain away clear Scripture in order to fit that system. Oops, that doesn't work. We're going to change a little bit of its meaning and now it works. When that begins to happen, something is desperately wrong with that man-made theological system. Honestly, I'm okay with paradoxes. The Trinity is a paradox, for crying out loud. That's why it's so hard to explain. But it's still true. Personally, it seems to me that if something can't be true unless... I can logically understand it and explain it logically. And this is what I hear from other people. Just because I can't logically put it together, I can't logically explain it, it seems to me that if something can't be true unless I can logically understand it, then I'm trying to bring God down to my level instead of being willing to rise to His What does it mean that your ways are higher than my ways, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts, if it doesn't mean that? So, oh, bless all of your hearts for, but you've stuck with me, man, and I so appreciate it. So what makes our salvation truly amazing? God's sovereignty means that our salvation is not because of us but because of God, and that salvation is secure, not because of us, but because of God. It also means that our free will means that in God's love for us, He gave us the freedom to choose to love Him back or not. His love is not coercive. It is true love. It's an amazing salvation. Amen. It's an amazing salvation. It is. So here is my statement. The sovereignty of God and free will of men gives us an urgency. That whoever we know, wherever they are, members of our family, friends, classmates, co-workers, neighbors, 
who do not know Jesus as Savior, we need to share Jesus Christ with them that they might come to know the sovereign God of the universe and receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And I challenge you to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and thank you for this opportunity to deal with this topic today. Now, Father, I pray that you would move in hearts today of people who do not know Jesus as Savior, that this would be the day of their salvation. You're calling. You're calling. You're drawing. Oh, God, put the want to in their heart, and that want to is your spirits drawing their hearts. Bring many today to receive Jesus as Savior. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.